Viktor Frankl said, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's way. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. Stay tuned for the next hour as Sue explores the human psyche, what makes us tick and how to live better, more fulfilled and more meaningful lives. Only on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM. And my guest today is Sibon Gassini Vilakazi. Fortunately, he is known affectionately as Sebo because he, one of his stories that he wrote is um, in a name, what's in a name. So if I wasn't uh, pronouncing it properly, I apologize, Sebo. But it is Sebo Abongaseni Vilakazi. And he wrote the book, Who Shall Stand, which has just been published and is amazing. Um, my son-in-law, Paul Koffler, one day phoned me and told me that he had a friend visiting from Durban and that his friend had just published a book and that he felt that this particular friend of his, Sebo, would be one, a wonderful guest on my program. Well, I trust Paul completely and thank you, Paulie, because I must admit, Sebo and I have been in contact with each other since then and we've had some wonderful interactions, haven't we, Sebo? Yes, we have. Welcome to my program. It's so good to have you here. Um, let me just tell you a little bit about Sebo. He actually has many qualifications behind him, but he's he actually wrote, my mother tells a story that from when I was about seven or eight years old, living in Imbaban, Swaziland, I would always run out the gate to help whenever I saw someone walk past our house carrying what looked like a heavy load. This passion for acts of service has stayed with me to my adulthood. From my first job as a high school teacher to my time in IT as a software developer and business analyst to my present day career in the not-for-profit sector, my main inspiration has been the chance to help improve someone else's life. And along the way, I've picked up key skills and experience in organizational leadership, program management, managing finances and budgets, leading organizational change, fundraising, organizational and project sustainability and others. I have participated in, in the design and impl the implementation of projects in diverse fields, including youth development, sustainable livelihoods, HIV, AIDS prevention, treatment and support, health communication, enterprise development, orphaned and vulnerable children, and local and economical development. Now that already says a lot about you, Sebel. How would you actually explain yourself? Well, first of all, thank you, Sue, for having me on your program. Good morning to you. Good morning to your listeners. I believe that uh, listeners are around the world. It is a great privilege for me to be on your show. I've enjoyed listening to the to the podcasts of the show from other uh, from other speakers whom you've had before me. So it's a it's a real pleasure. How would I describe myself after all that? You know, the one way that I usually think of myself 
is that I'm a peace farmer. Yeah. Uh, I, I got that from Arun Gandhi, by the way. He's the grandson of um, the Mahatma. Mahatma. Yes. Uh, he, he, he visit, he's visited our site a number of times. Whenever he's in South Africa, part of what he does is come to the Valley Trust and take whatever guests he's got with him into our communities. They retrace Gandhi's steps in, in, in Durban. And, so, and one of those is through communities that we serve. So him and I have had the opportunity to have these really wonderful chats. And he describes himself as a peace farmer, which uh, spoke to me and, and made me realize that's how I see myself. And I love the, the, the idea of farming, getting your hands dirty in order to bring something forth, to bring something uh, new out. So I, uh, that's, that's, that's how I would describe myself. I would, I'm going to, we're going to go back to that. We just have to break for a moment. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. This is Sue Jackson and I'm back with um, Sebon Gassini Villacazi and you can SMS us on 34519 or you can telegram us on 061-895-1019. Thank you, Busy and Craig, for keeping us on air. And Sebo, I am back with you. And you were talking about Gandhi's um, grandson, who has been with, has come to see the Valley Trust. Tell me about a bit about this Valley Trust. The Valley Trust, Sue, is a not-for-profit organization that was founded in 1953. So we've had 68 years of existence. And it serves mainly the communities of the Valley of a Thousand Hills, hence the name. And it is based in the Valley of a Thousand Hills in a, um, an area called um, Waters Hill. In fact, it is Kadi, just outside uh, Hillcrest, uh, on the western edge of Durban. We work mainly through our interest is health-related programming. We own a clinic which we outsource to the KZN Department of Health, so they run it and act as a tenant of ours. And then we also run lots of programs in and around the city of Etewini related to, to health, to health promotion, including ch- uh, child health, youth development, HIV and AIDS, and, and, and many others. You know, you mentioned the the one uh, the child program to me the other day when we contacted each other on Skype, and I loved what you said about taking the baby off the back and educate in educating them with whatever there is in the little huts or wherever they are. Just tell me a bit about that. Yes, so it's, it's an exciting program. It's our flagship program. We call it the Kulagashem Duana program, which means grow well child. And the idea behind it is to uh, ensure the healthy growth and development of zero to six year old children. And so there are no credible, there are very few, if any, credible early development uh, centers in the kind of communities that we serve. So we go into households and we uh, work with a primary caregiver, whether it's the mother, the grandmother, sibling, whoever's responsible for 
the health of the child and we uh, work with them in terms of raising their awareness and skills levels about what is it that you can do in the home to ensure that your child not only grows properly physically but cognitively, mentally as well. And so some of those cognitive skills that are necessary can be developed through things like counting and, you know, uh, speech, um, storytelling. So we do all these with these, um, with these households. So why do you say to take them off the back? What, what is, what does that actually mean? Okay. So it's been found that I discovered this for the first time when I uh, started working on this program. Actually, I didn't, I wasn't aware that speech, an important component to the development of speech. In fact, it, speech itself is uh, the development of speech is an important predictor of intelligence, just um, or determinant of in, of lifelong intelligence. So it's important that speech is developed early on in life. But what we've found is that, or what I've learned uh, since we started doing this program, is that speech develops not just through sound, but also through sight. So for a child to learn how to form words, how to pronounce words, they need to see the mum or the person they are communicating with and see how they're shaping their mouths and see how their facial expressions go in order to help the child be able to say those words properly. Now, in traditional households such as the ones that we serve, babies spend a lot of time on their mother's backs mainly because the moms need their hands free in order to do many, the many chores that they have to do around the house. So what we teach is rather than keeping the child on your back or putting it on a bed, uh, you know, in the bedroom uh, somewhere, have the child sit next to you. When you're washing the dishes in that bowl on the floor, that's a good opportunity to start having the child counting how many spoons, how many items have I taken out the... Have I taken out the bowl? What color is this? What shape is this? You can also give them uh, the items to handle, and they, that develops their tactile sens- um, sensitivity to these, all these different uh, textures. So there are loads and loads of opportunities to uh, teach a child just in the home and with what you have in the home. That's so exciting to hear. It really is. Now, I want to go back to your book. And um, Paul gave me your book to read, and your book is called Who Shall Stand? And I, I thought, okay, I'm going to read a few little uh, – It's you've got many uh, parts to it. Just let me read a few. Um, it's, it's Who Shall Stand? These are some poetry, some prose, stories. A lot of it is to do with uh, Sebo's own experiences. Who shall stand, Ravonia revisited, like a shadow in the dark? What's in a name? My writing presents me, life's not fair. All hail the single mothers. Xenophobia, the good news. If you see me, God saw that it was very good. Life happens, God's amazing rainbow, a casket, a gaping hole, and a wailing widow. You know, he talks about Leonard Cohen and insomnia and life flowing like a river. Now, I picked up your book 
And I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to just read a couple of the shorter stories. And I opened it up at random. And I'm a great believer in the fact that we have to um, tell each other stories. That's how we learn about each other and begin to understand each other better, especially in our country. And what your book really did for me um, was what Martin Luther King said, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. So your book, as I started to read it, I was brought up with so, so many unbelievable emotions came up to me. And um, the feelings that it evoked in me were feelings of joy, of guilt, as Martin Luther King said. I am a product, I'm a child of apartheid, brought up in the apartheid era. So your, your story, your, your book brought up these feelings of joy, of hope, of laughter, of gratitude, of deep sadness and deep guilt, despair anger, but it also did, without doubt, I could see in your stories this forward movement, that we didn't have to remain victims of our past, any of us, that we could move into Victor and into our our own light. And, um, and I, I looked at it and I thought, okay, so I have to change what no longer serves me. Um, Sebo's, um, sister actually, Sebo, you had a webinar, um, in, in Durban, um, at the India, India consulate, um, the cultural consulate, and the, they were talking about the, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but Tukakalok, which is called the light of the book. And your sister, Sandili, uh, gave, uh, was talking about honoring you as an author and as a brother, and that she said that for a while you yourself lost your joy of life, your joy of living in the challenges of your own life. So as you wrote this book and as you've had feedback by from different people, what does it mean to you to become an author of words that are just so incredibly important? Thank you, Sue. Thank you for that uh, view that, that that you expressed. I sorry, just hang on. We're going to get back to that. I'm just getting a message to go to an ad, and then we're going to get back to what it's meant to you. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and I'm back on Finding Human, and I'm back with uh, Sebo Villakazi. And Sebo was about to tell us about his his experiences in writing this book and actually the feedback you have received from this book. Would you like to go on with that, Sebo? The feelings you have actually, that have arisen for you that you weren't expecting even. Yes, thank you, Sue. So as my sister says, I've, I've gone through times in my own life where... The joy of, of, of living left me. And I can trace this back to my uh, pre-teens even. 
when uh, when I lost my father, I was 12 years old. And this was uh, being an only son with five sisters. My, uh, my father and I were already outnumbered in the home. So when he left, it, it, it felt very lonely. Mm-hmm. And I, what, what I've realized, and this came to me to the fore at the time when I was writing the book or in the process of writing the book, was that having lost my father at that age gave me a sensitivity to suffering both my own and that of others. And so I have strived to whatever extent I could to help wherever I see that someone is in a, is in a difficult situation or in a, in a spot of bother. So that's the, one, that's the one aspect to it. The other is that I, was, I went through a domestic situation which actually gave rise to the, to the poetry. I didn't even know I was, I was a poet before. And it ended up that I found healing and solace in writing poetry. And whereas previous to, 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 to then, and in fact previous to our chats, you, be, uh, you and I, I thought myself an accidental poet. I thought, you know, an accidental author. But looking back, I realized that what that time did for me was really just give me the opportunity to have this insight into this other part of my life, that words have always been important to me and that it took that time of strife and that time of suffering for me to be to be inspired to put those words down and put my thoughts down on paper. So I would say that it's been a, it's been a, all these experiences that kind of evoked these emotions and this desire to write that uh, brought the book about. Because there's so many of them are, are very, very deep. And um, I was often thinking as I was reading them, you know, um, how did you actually feel writing them? I also know that you made the decision to go from a lucrative business to an NGO, which in itself is a very um, noble thing to do. Did that Was that one of your almost choices of, of pushing you into writing this book? Did that opportunity of going into a place where you could where there was service, you were giving service. Did, did that actually help you, yourself, find a little bit more of yourself? It, it did, definitely. So I, um, when I was at university, I hold a Bachelor of Science degree with majors in biology and chemistry. But I have to say that for me, throughout my life at campus, the most fulfilling thing was volunteering with an NGO that was based on the campus. And subsequent to the BSc, I uh, did a course in computer programming and ended up in IT uh, for one of the big four banks in um, Johannesburg. But I had kept touch with the NGO in Durban that where, where I volunteered. And in the course of time, a, um, a position arose there that I immediately, without a second thought, dropped my job uh, in IT and went to join this organization, and I've been in the sector for 15, 16 years now. But it's really just that opportunity to be able to be of, uh, to be able to be of service 
to others. And I think the other thing that I would add there, Sue, is in my writing, what surprised me about my writing was how it revealed to me things about me that I uh, was not necessarily aware of. For example, when I started writing, I didn't even think I was going to write poetry. I ended up writing uh, mostly poetry. But also I thought, okay, once I started writing, I thought I'd write light, fluffy stuff, maybe suitable for children's reading. But it's been anything but. You know, it's m- much of it has been about social justice, the injustices, but also encouraging people to take a stand, hence the title of the book, and also presenting uh, ways out of the many predicaments that we find ourselves in. So it was in the process of writing that I got to learn that I feel that strongly about social justice. So it's been quite a, a self-revealing process. The one interesting thing when you and I were sharing emails, one of the interesting things was that you said that there are two parts to you that you never recognized before. Now, the good and the, the, you know, there was also with, within you the devil. Right. And, and, and I wrote back saying that that's within all of us and, and that is our challenge. And I wanted to read you this. It's an old Cherokee. Uh, 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 saying, and it's an old Cherokee told his grandson, my son, there is a battle between two wolves inside us all. One is evil. It is anger, jealousy, greed, resentment, inferiority, lies, and ego. The other is good. It is joy, peace, love, hope, humility, kindness, empathy, and truth. The boy thought about it and he asked, Grandfather, which wolf wins? And the old man quietly replied, The one you feed. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that is just so beautiful because I think in our lives, so often we are caught up in, in things sometimes beyond our control. But we need to recognize always that we do have the choice of which one do we feed, the good or the bad in us or in the situation. Do you agree with that? I agree 100%. And what I was sharing with you uh, during that interaction between you and I was the fact that part of what surprised me, and this came out in, in the piece that you were referring to that I wrote, was that in my domestic strife, I uh, was surprised to see that uh, I've always considered myself an easygoing person. I love people. I, I, I go out of my way to keep relationships and, and, and friendships. And I'm a peace farmer. I, you know, I will bend over backwards to for peace or to make things, I, to help make things go right. That's, uh, that's something I try to do all the time. But what I found was that when it came to it, there were times when I was decidedly evil myself and even rejoiced in it uh, uh, to some extent. And that shocked me. And I remember that I'm looking at this now in retrospect and I'm thinking, my goodness, I, I, I didn't realize that I also, side by side with this uh, angel of peace, had actually become quite a beast and someone who reveled even in, 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 in inflicting injury on um, on someone else. Not grave injury, I would hope, 
uh, and not so much, not not really wanton and and, and, and and deliberate many times, but certainly in response to certain stimuli, in certain to certain experiences or to certain ways, I felt treated. I was, uh, you know, I was quick myself to put my gloves on and get in the ring mm-hmm. and unleash that. Uh, that's very interesting because one of your very beautiful stories is, well, most of your stories, I must admit, are just so beautiful. And Drake says, you're beautiful because you know your own darkness. And still, that alone doesn't stop you from finding your own light. And that, I think, is particularly beautiful, that, you know, even to recognize our darkness but still strive towards that light. And you, when you talk about um, a, a woman, you, you have a great compassion and empathy for women. Tell me a bit about that, that um, story of yours, the story of, of women. Well, I've had no choice, really, <laughs> I, I think, because, like I said earlier, I grew up an only son with <laughs> five sisters, and this is just between my mom and dad. There were also, um, my father was married twice. He had been married before he, met, he married my mom and had three girls. So I was outnumbered by, uh, by a long ways. But what that also meant is that my uh, biggest influences, my role models for what good living and what loving is were women. And I feel fortunate about that because my mother did never, never did get married. Or mainly on account of her children. And she really had uh, secretarial-type jobs all her working life, but she saw all her children through university. Wow. And, and you know, she was only 37 with, 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 these six, with these six children when my father passed away. And she made sure. My youngest sister was, wasn't even a year old. Oh, my, my gosh. That's but, amazing. Yeah, but that one too went through university. Oh. So I've seen my, 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 my family, in my family and in the women, uh, around me in my life, I've seen them face hardships. I've seen them, uh, come out strong and I've seen, they've, they've been this example to me of what it means to grab life, you know, by the horns and make the most of the, of the situation. And I think I learned it, it touches a bit on Viktor Frankl's uh, saying that's quoted at the start of this of this program that you you've got to choose your own way. My mom could have taken the easy way out. She could have married someone. My mom is a former beauty queen, by the way. So oh. she could have married some rich guy who took her for her looks and you know didn't really care what happened to her kids. But she chose the hard way, the way of staying with her kids and. Um, you know, trying to raise us as good children, which I think she did well, in my view. And so it's, it's, that also inculcated in me that awareness of the fact that you do choose your way in life. And, you know, circumstances, you can't control them many times. They'll come at you whichever way, but it really is up to you how you respond. You know, um, so does it hurt you when you read um, what often happens with the domestic violence in the homes and so often in homes where the boys have been brought up by the men now, let's say, 
by the women on, in their lives, by the, the grannies and their mothers or their, their sisters, um, does it surprise you that that violence, that domestic abuse is still so strong? It, it offends me greatly. Yeah. I, I, I find it, I, I, yeah, it, I just, it reviles me. I, I really do not um, stand for it. But it doesn't surprise me. I think our a large part of it, and people keep saying don't drag the past, but I think it's significant here. Growing up in, in broken homes, uh, especially within the black community, many of our homes are broken. There's lots of single parent homes and it's single mothers usually bringing up all these children, whether, whether boys or girls. And I think that's at the heart of, um, or it's one of the key, certainly one of the key reasons behind this scourge and, and, and the scale to which we see the scourge of domestic, domestic violence. And so in my, in my view, I, I can't picture how I would see a woman any less than, than myself. Because, in fact, I've seen far greater uh, character, far greater humanness or humanity in women than what I'm capable of, or than what I see in myself. And, in fact, I'm in awe of, of, of women. There's a piece that I, uh, that I write in the book. Um, it, it was for women. It was published in the Mercury, which is a local new, uh, newspaper in Durban, uh, around the time of Women's Day in 2019. But it's about how, when I first came to live in Durban, one of the things that struck me was all these ramshackle, um, roughly put together uh, structures along along Umgeni Road, where, 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 where women from all around Southern Africa come to buy stuff, and then they stay there in those shelters to try and sell as much of it as they can and then take their money home. But uh, even that, to me, just burnt into my heart and into my mind this picture of what women, the lengths women will go to in order to fight for their families. Mm-hmm. Where often there, there are males there who don't even appreciate what these women are doing for them. So I'm, I'm, I'm uh, yeah, I'm incensed. I, uh, I, I, I feel offended at the thought of domestic violence and the fact that it is so prevalent. And I wish we could take stronger steps to address it and I wish that men would learn that it doesn't serve them either to have this view of women and, um, yeah, that it, it's a quite, it not, not just wrong, but really unnecessary. Totally. And this uh, email came through from Professor Les Erwig in Sydney in Australia. Uh, he was an ex-South African, had to leave South Africa during the apartheid era. And he, this says, the truth is that we are not yet free. We have merely achieved the freedom to be free, the right not to be oppressed. We have not taken the final step of our journey, but the first step on a longer and even more difficult road. For to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. The true test of our devotion to freedom is just beginning. That was Madiba Nelson Mandela wrote that. 
And I think that is something that that is the challenge to all of us. We are not free until everyone is actually free. Women, men, children, xenophobic uh, violence towards strangers, refugees. Um, We are never free until we actually look at ourselves very deeply. I'm just getting a message from the studio. Just wait a moment. We're just going to break. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and my guest today is Sembo Gassini Villakazi, and our topic is his book, Who Shall Stand? That is our topic's name. Um, Now, Sembo, just to go back to uh, another story in your book, which I found uh, also evoked many feelings in me, and that was what's in a name. Just touch on that for me, please. I believe names are very important. Certainly in the in the African context, in the black African context, we put a lot of stock by names. And, and in the Jewish context as well, you know, with our Hebrew names. Sure. And so it is, uh, it's often quite, uh, disheartening and, and disappointing to see the flippant way in which people, usually white people, Westerners, who may not understand the importance of a name to me, and, and maybe better to, to pronounce it. And to them, they'll, you know, they'll butcher it or they just won't give it the respect that it deserves. I had a, an experience, this was when I lived in Jova, and um, I was in a, I can't remember what the situation was, but there was a lovely older white woman who asked me my name. And so I gave her my name. I said, it's Bongiseni. She looked at me and she says, can I call you Bongile? And I thought, no, you can't. <laughs> it's, not, it's not my name. Mm. And so... Uh, I, yeah, and, and I found this to be the case just generally. Uh, and people don't, you know, my own name, one of the reasons I've even shortened it to the three letters, S-B-O, which is not how I grew up with it being shortened, by the way. I've always grown up being called Sbongi, Sbongi, but now I'm Sbo. It's really because it's uh, easier for, for many more people. But the thing is, I find that a lot of uh, South Africans in particular from uh, particularly white South Africans, usually just don't understand maybe, but pay, have absolutely no respect for, for, for people's names. Yet in the black community, names are given for a particular reason. So my name mm-hmm. is Bongi uh, Remember I said my father had been married before he had three girls. He married my mom, got a girl, and I'm the second born in that marriage. So I was my father's fifth child and the the first boy so when i when my, when i came out and i was a boy my grandmother said rejoice with us we've got a boy now someone who'll continue the family name and that's what my name means so I, I, for someone to call me something else really just takes away that important part of me and and as we've seen as we know from biblical times the names often foretell a destiny Mm. Or people get drawn to the destiny that um, you know that comes from their name. 
So uh, that's, how, that's how come I wrote this piece. It's really to try and raise people's awareness. You know, at the end of it, I, 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 I finish it off like this. So don't change my name to what you prefer to make it convenient for you to refer. For you take my whole life and you empty my well and leave me as nothing but an empty shell. And that's what it does when 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 you don't respect my name or you don't use it properly. And and that your that whole story actually evoked so many memories, so many thoughts in me, as I say, especially having come through the apartheid era. And you mean you say not that this happened, I must admit, in, in, in my particular home, there was always respect. But, um, you know, it was that, like you would hear saying, people saying, ask the garden boy or yeah. ask the girl in the kitchen, you know, and so the name was just not there. And yeah. so that, that evoked such feelings of, Guilt in me, I must admit, which was good. I mean, I think your book needs to be read by everybody because I think we've all, every single part of our rainbow nation has got something to learn from it. We'll, it will evoke different feelings in all of us. And it's not a thick book. Tell us where they can actually get it if they want to. Okay, so it's available for those nearby, anywhere in South Africa, actually, you can get it from me as well. I'm quite happy to send it to you, and I've done this uh, lots of times, and uh, I can give you my cell phone number soon. Yes, I think so. Which is 072-639-6567. But to, so 072-639-6567. Or my email address, um, which is s-b-o-n-g-i-v, v at gmail.com. Alternatively, it's available from my uh, publisher's website, which is www.madeinchatsworth, all of that one word, .co.za. Okay, you know, because I, I think people might contact you rather on 072-639-6567 and you can then tell them what yeah. what to go to. Craig is saying we're just going back onto another um, break. The time goes so quickly as I told you. Okay, thank you, Craig. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and I'm back with Semba Vasini, Vilakazi. Uh, I mean, I do battle with your name, so Sebo, <laughs> I'll try even harder. But Sebo, I know that Leonard Cohen, you, you said that you, you loved Leonard Cohen's songs. Tell me what it meant, they meant to you. I, I love, I love his poetry. He, it, he contributed, I think in uh, quite a significant measure to my even writing poetry in, in, in the first place. And I was thinking about even the title. I, was, I didn't think of, think of it that way at the time, but he's got a song called Who, Shall, uh, Who By Fire. And I think that was resonating in my, in my, in my head, as, even as I was writing this poem, because there he says, Who shall I say is calling? So it's kind of who's doing something. And for me, I was, when I wrote the poem, Who Shall Stand? It's about who is going to stand up and fight for 
the well-being of those who are finding themselves marginalized or finding themselves unable to enjoy this democracy in in whatever way. So Leonard Cohen's been a, a great influence. The other thing that I love about Leonard Cohen is I read up on uh, on his uh, song Hallelujah, which I knew for a long time before I was even aware who did the original version. I was before I was aware that he wrote it. But that song took him years to write. Uh, by the time he finished, he had about a hundred verses, and then he whittled it down to seven or so verses that he put in a song. He first released it, I think it was 1984. It didn't do that well at all. I think Bob Dylan is one of the few people that used to play that song in his uh, concerts. And then it took for someone else, I, the name escapes me now, to release it in, the, in their album before the song finally found the light of day and popularity, which was probably some 20 years or so after it was originally written. So he stands to me as this other example of how perseverance can um, reap results in ways that we don't expect. And he and it, that story encourages me not to give up, not to expect results now, but to realize that, you know, even what I'm doing with the Valley Trust, I may not see the results today, but maybe even after I'm gone, that, that's only then the results will come. But that's kind of some of the inspiration that I get from Leonard Cohen. But I thoroughly enjoy his music. I listen to him a lot. Now, funny enough, I've actually asked Craig and Wissy to play uh, Who by File by Leonard Cohen after our program. So for anyone who's listening in, uh, stay on and listen to that, please. It's not going to come through on the podcast because, uh, you know, we don't podcast the songs, but it is there. Um, Sebo, I'm being told to wrap up, but it's been such a pleasure having you on my program. And, you know, Rumi, the Sufi poet, says, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. Mm. And I love that because you and I do plan to meet and we will meet in that field in our own time and share so much. What would you like to end with? I would love to end by uh, thanking you for this uh, for this opportunity to be on this on this program. And um, just again, like I said earlier, it's been wonderful and revealing to have these chats in preparation to to our to our chats today. And then. Um, so the other thing I would say maybe to the listeners out there is what, what I've enjoyed even listening to other podca- podcasts of your other shows is it is so important for all of us to live lives in a deliberate way where we think about the impact we have on those around us and the impact we could have on those around us and think about how we want to live the world after we are gone. And my book is really just... Also, my, my contribution in whatever way, when I say who shall stand, I'm directing that question to me, first and foremost. What is it more that you are going to do for the world you know, for this time? I think it's Victor Frankl that says each one of us has an assignment that only we can uh, fulfill. And it's important for each one of us to, first, uh, to, 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 to do our best to find out what that assignment is and to do our best to fulfill it in the best way that we can. 
Wonderful. Picasso, on that note, I'll just end with this Pablo Picasso. He says, the meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. So that's what you have done in your book. You have given this wonderful purpose away for other people to actually expand on it. And thank you so much. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Bussy. I'll speak to you shortly.